This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. This is what happens when you just can talk, you talk out ideas, and no one really mm-hmm. has an answer, but we have something else. And just, yeah, that's just right. see, right. yeah, to see science part. just drive itself. Hi, everybody. David Lasondek here for Body Talk. The voice you just heard was Rebecca Pratt from the Fascia Research Society. And she was present, as was I, in April in Philadelphia at the Experimental Biology Conference, which was a huge conference representing a number of different professional groups. And we were there along with Lori Nemitz, Neil Thies, and Helen Langevin. In fact, you probably heard the podcast from uh, a number of weeks ago where we interviewed all of them. And uh, this, however, is a very special treat because in between the formal conversation and the actual podcast recording, uh, people stayed over and they picked Neil and Helen's brains and I recorded most of it. Happy to tell you. And um, we're going to share it with you now. Now I had to take out obviously the voices of the people who are asking questions or asking for comments because they didn't know they were being recorded. I wasn't even sure the recording was going to be good enough, but it survived. It's awesome. You're going to hear all about the myth of ATP and myosin and actin, among other things. It's going to be just a spectacular science geek out here on Body Talk. Presumably that's where the answer is coming from. What happens when the fluid volume outstrips its capacity mm-hmm. to be bound? Yeah. And then what sort of dysfunctions are happening? Lymphedema is a good example. Yeah. Right. Lymphedema yeah. is a perfect yeah. example. Yeah. No, exactly. That's Did they get lymphedema, actually? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether it changes over time and becomes very dense. Yeah, that's right. interesting to know even. Yeah. So yeah. What kind of edema do they get? Yeah. I, I, I think Some most people just say, it's, you know, they changed fat and they have 30% yeah. body fat, but right. nobody's but really looked at it yet. And, and one of the interesting things is you look at the tissue, <laughs> you see, in, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of really weird adiposity syndromes where people, cellulite may be the most common, yeah. <laughs> um, mm, yeah. but there, when our paper came out, I got so many emails from people who said, I saw your paper, I've got this weird familial syndrome of this weird uh, ruminologic thing where I get fat deposits yeah. everywhere and I just know mm-hmm. that what you're talking about is what's involved. Um, but all of these tissues have adipocytes mm-hmm. and now there are these papers showing yeah. that these cells are lipogenic precursors, mm-hmm. some of them. So there's something else going on there mm-hmm. too that we haven't been able to figure out mm-hmm. and what do... For this mesentery interstitium review, Becky and I had to write um, the role of adipocytes and what they're doing in terms of producing exosomes that are locally signaling as well as yeah. signaling at a distance. There's a whole complex thing there that. Okay, so the first question was about low back pain and specifically idiopathic low back pain. And they were curious if Dr. Langevin thought that a lot of idiopathic low back pain was being misdiagnosed because it doesn't show up on films and that there were myofascial components to that idiopathic low back pain. Here's what Helen had to say. Just seeing my thong here, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's been a pendulum, right? 30 years ago, if you had back pain, 
you went to the orthopedic surgeon, you yep. got a spine right. x-ray, absolutely. you got a CT, then you get an MRI as we go in time. But totally focus on the spine, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to publish a paper, the only place you could go is spine, spine. journal. Yep. And there's nothing in the back outside of the spine. <laughs> Apparently. Then, then people started realizing, wait a minute, there's no correlation between what you find in the spine and back pain. Therefore, it's not in the back. Therefore, it's in the brain. And then for 20 years, yeah. everybody just looked at the brain, 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 brain. There's no connection. Well, there's stuff going on in the back that's not in the spine. And that, <laughs> that has to do with the brain, yes, with the nervous system. But all these other tissues in the back that we haven't looked at yet. So I would say that's like the third space, you know, that's missing from back pain research. So that's why it needs to be reconnected back together. So that's what we're trying to do. Next up was a physical therapist who was working with fibromyalgia patients. He found that when he worked with them doing a program based on Qigong, they got excellent results. But when he tried to accelerate those excellent results into a more rigorous exercise program, it didn't work so well. Well, I'm, a, I'm a, myself a case study in this, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have fibromyalgia, but I'm getting old, you know. And <laughs> and uh, it it it, it right. You can do if you do tai chi or if you do qigong, you can do it in a very light way, just most, basically mobilization. You're not really engaging the muscles that much. Right. If you if you want to, I mean, there's a lot of studies that show that it does help. Fibromyalgia helps. It helps for back pain. It helps for a lot of things. But what if the person really wants to try to take it to the next level, as you're saying? They want to start building some muscle. They want to try to, you know, just get in better shape. A lot of times, we'll have people who have setbacks. They'll, they're just doing a little bit too much. So it's just a matter of ramping it up, but very being mindful and really pay attention to what happens the next day. Not what happens sure. while they're exercising. If they're exercising and then they wake up the next day and they feel they feel worse, Exactly. It's because they've done too much. Just go back and do half as much or a quarter as much and build it up over time. I think that's the, that's the secret. It's really being very mindful. I'd like to tack on a, a, a question about Tai Chi and hear how, what both of you would say. Becky and I have been looking into the issue of piezoelectricity mm -hmm. through these tissues because collagen fibrils, when they stack up thickly enough, they turn into a piezocrystal, meaning any wow. kinetic energy, any way they move, turns into electrical flux. Um, or if you send a charge through, that will turn into movement. And we're looking particularly in tendons and, and uh, dermis at this, and we're seeing effects and at high enough level that they're probably, these are uh, uh, electrical flow that the cell, local cells at least can respond to. So there may be some interaction there. Because of that, thinking about that, I took up Tai Chi about nice. three years ago mm -hmm. um, with a teacher who, who's local to me in, in Chinatown, in New York, um, with push hands practice, which was very much about cultivating uh, a sense of energy flow and then using that, um, not in a mechanical way, but just as a, you know, and he routinely throws us 20 feet across the room, and it's very weird. Um, <laughs> What about the role of that kind of, uh, do, you, do you think that when we talk about chi, <laughs> whatever we mean by that, um, is piezoelectricity part of that and the movements of Tai Chi or Qi Kung are potentially ways that have identified to potentiate that? Wow. And then what's the role there in terms of fibromyalgia 
he responded to me. I didn't tell him about my Ehlers Danlos, but he said to me that the way my chi flows is different than the other students hmm. when we do things. And then I started talking to him about uh -huh. this. He goes, Oh, yeah, that's it. But we haven't done an experiment to see whether we can identify EDS people by the quality of their chi. I don't know. So I'm just going to throw that out. I think I'd like to just riff on the piezoelectricity because sure. this is an area that I think a lot, it's been kind of these pockets of yeah. conversations yeah. for 30 years, right? Yeah. About this. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I looked at it, and there may be some, some new things that I don't know about, most of the clear demonstrations of piezoelectric conduction was through uh, dry tissue. Right. Once you yeah. start hydrating them, yeah. then the ionic currents that occur in response to the mechanical forces dominate. Right. Right. So <laughs> it becomes very difficult to see electronic. So I have not personally seen a convincing demonstration of piezoelectric movement in live hydrated tissue. Have you? Well, I, I don't. Becky's been handling this, and she may be able to appear shortly mm. around our lunchtime to, oh. mm. so she could tell you what's going on. I think they're looking at wet tissue, not dry. Okay, so mm. that's but, important. That yeah, would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's so obvious, right? right. That yeah. it's such an elegant, yes. you know, you have this crystalline structure. You right. can have all sorts <laughs> of stuff. I mean, it's beautiful, but, right? right? Just in theory. I just have not seen it, it, it experimentally. I think it's right. very, very difficult. It, it is difficult, to, to but, do, but yeah. probably not impossible. No, and I that's she found someone. That's why I don't know. This is a collaboration she set up with oh, someone. Nice. I think a temple, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we can ask her. Another physical therapist, this one from India, was comparing and contrasting the more Western approach, which is very regional, versus the more traditional Indian approach, which is more whole body based what the panel thought fascia had to do with that, hyaluronin, all that stuff. And there was some really interesting discussion about piezoelectricity here. You don't want to miss this. A uh, key thing with the, with the HA is, and I think this is almost impossible to study still, is the composition of the HA, short chain versus long chain. Yeah. Um, it's not how much there is, but it's okay. the nature of the hyaluronic acid mm -hmm. because the way they aggregate will change based on structure. Um, and, and we've been having a hard time getting um, at that. And we're working with Carla. Um, we set up a collaboration. Becky's a basic scientist that has a lab, I don't. So we've been exchanging mm -hmm. people. But this is a really hard question methodologically to get at. Not just how much HA there is, but what is it short chain versus long chain? Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to change behavior. This is this guy in Bergen, Norway, who years ago, I mean, he did this beautiful work on uh, inflammation. And what, what he showed basically is that, well, his original observation, usually when you think about inf inflammation, you think about increased capillary permeability and flow mm -hmm. going into the tissue. What mm -hmm. he showed is it's, it's not that. It's because the, the fluid pressure inside the tissue becomes more negative, and mm -hmm. the fluid actually gets dragged into the tissue. And what drives that is, um, remember those, I was talking about those cells, fiber, whatever, in the connective tissue that, that hold on to the matrix? And if you have cytokines or even any used integrin blockers, and they let go of the matrix, and the tissue, the pores, yeah. those pores that you were yeah. showing, increase, and the water gets sucked into the tissue. The tissue becomes more negative pressure. Mm -hmm. And what, what he thought was a component of that was an osmotic drag, because when you, when you increase the pores, 
you expose more of those negatively charged. Uh, I also can't pronounce hydrogen. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. H-A. H-A. Just say H-A. 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 I not pronounce that word. Yeah. Uh, and, anyway, negative charges and that pours water in. But, um, it, and, and so, um, where was I? I forget where I was going with this. But this is so important because it's a big part of this. There's a cellular component. Information. Yeah. It's the relationship between the matrix and the open char- negative charges on this, the free water and yep. the bound water, and also the cell. Yeah. And how the cells are controlling, and that little picture I showed with the colchicine. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's important yeah. because yeah. we also show that if you increase the osmolarity of the tissues, the cells don't change shape. Yeah. So it's osmotically oh. driven. And also, the mechanism awesome. by which these cells swell is by releasing ATP, which is the same mechanism of osmotic swelling. Right, right, mm-hmm. So right, I think right. that wow. osmos- osmotic swelling, regulation of connective tissue tension, <laughs> inflammation, all of that stuff. Uh, matrix uh, binding of water yeah. all related. And the ratio of bound to free water is right. so important. But then oh, I want to yeah. bounce back to piezoelectricity because I've been thinking, you know, I, I've been in PT, physical therapy for 12 years because of mm-hmm. EDS injuries mm-hmm. and you described me so well. <laughs> um, and um, but, but so one of the things that helps when I've had acute tears is ultrasound. And then I ask my PTs why ultrasound works. And they have ideas about heat and they have ideas about bubbles, etc. But then I realized that an ultrasound machine generates its ultrasound waves because it has a piezo crystal inside. Electricity comes in, the crystal starts to vibrate, producing ultrasound waves. And then it hits my immobile tendon, which has been torn. So there's no piezoelectricity because it's... Not mm-hmm. moving. Right, right. Starts to move it at that particular resonance. Oh. And is that going to then start to generate an electrical current, which then the cells become activated because, because of the now. electrical yeah. current? <laughs> There's a great little thing there, I think, yeah. <laughs> but I don't no know what clue. to do with it. <laughs> but it would also fit into the same. And, and you can imagine, yeah, and what happens to the piezoelectricity in wet tissue? Yeah. Or, or variably wet tissue, really wet as yeah. opposed to somewhat yeah, dry. Right. There may be yeah, changes yeah. there. Must, yeah, yeah, there yeah, must yeah, be yeah. Some, <laughs> some relationship there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, it's so encouraging to me. Gosh, if I go back 20 years, it would have been impossible to have this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Even 10 years, yeah. or even yeah, five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think your work is really important. I think yeah. you, you kind of unlocked a lot of stuff. Well, By accident. But, but, <laughs> no, you really did. You really did. And I remember when I first read your paper, I went, huh? But it wasn't clear. It was a piece of the puzzle that you right. stuck yeah. in. And then it was so great that you also had, and I think uh, Carla and Antonio's also work was so instrumental. They, they describe these layers. Right. That oh, you yeah. wash them, dissect them with their hands, and it's just, mm-hmm. just so, you know, it yeah. connects you back to the real world. So they were really, you know... And then um, we all got to meet each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Fun start. Really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well done, everybody. Next up wasn't so much a question, but an exploration from somebody who had been working with a colleague for 20 years now on something that he was terming as autonomic realignment technique. And what they were doing, how they were describing it, was both a bottom-up and a top-down approach. Uh, The bottom-up involving the withdrawal reflex and basically stimulating the inhibition of that withdrawal. Whereas the top-down 
seem to be more cognitive-based and dealing specifically with trauma, adverse childhood experiences, so on and so forth. And again, here's the panel. What controls the sympathetic mm-hmm. outflow to the, at the segmental level, right? Yeah. You have these observations yeah. when you people who have areas that are especially with the, um, um, what's the name, uh, CP, Oh, uh, complex um, regional pain syndrome, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Where where they have cool, cold, or hot, you know, mm-hmm. and sweaty skin, and that's a local, probably you know, segmental mm-hmm. sympathetic dysregulation. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's the control of that? Where does that get controlled? Is it in the spinal cord? Is it? I don't know. I mean, yes. this is so important, and there are indications. There's some there's some studies that show that there are uh, interneurons that connect the dorsal horn with the right. lateral. Um, right. You know right. uh, where those mm-hmm. autonomic uh, cell bodies yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Connections there with uh, I forget the GABA, GABA synergic interneurons. Yeah. But do you know anything about this? I mm-hmm. only know a little bit, but I'm I'm also interested because I came out of background of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. I'm a movement therapist, still licensed, so I'm always also really curious. You know what what does that hit system wide? Is it because it's a brain function? Is it because we're talking nerves coded in fascia and there is something going on because of that during, you know, what is the mechanism that sometimes has done this? Um, Not a lot of great research yet, but Kelsius, is it Kelsius? who started to do some on fascia and psychotherapy. This was one of the other things that was really striking that emails I got from uh, patients. And I use the word patients because they were all asking me, can you help me now because you published this paper? I was like, no, I'm a pathologist. Um, all these people with the adipose deposition, things that were weird, but the other was fibromyalgia patients. Dozens of people wrote to me and said, that's the part of me that's not working. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't tell me exactly why, but their intuition was I had finally named it. Mm-hmm. So there's something, and, and no one... I mean, the, the, yeah. the interstitial side of this is a compartment no one had available to look at. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really intrigued by the, the, the continuity with the nerves. I see it in the, uh, you know, prostate cancer classically gets perineural invasion. And now once you've seen these pictures, you see the cancer cells moving through the spaces from the, the stroma of the prostate into the perineurium and then into the nerve. Um, there's a whole bunch of tumors that classically do this. So mm-hmm. why those? That's a whole question no one's asked. But exactly. now we can look at it. Right. The plate is a path. Yeah. But but the 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 tech who's doing she's pre med, uh, but she's a histotech um, who's doing our immunostaining. She noticed that every time she sends me slides with the triple staining, some nerves are filled with hyaluronic acid and some are not. Mm-hmm. Which I noted, but just didn't pay attention to because uh-huh. it wasn't. I don't know nerves, but she was like, "Can I do that as a project? Why is it that some nerves are filled with HA and other nerves aren't? What function does HA serve in nerves? What sort of communication pathway is it? Is it open in some nerves and closed in others?" Right. right. Um, the there are very few papers. Uh, suggesting the pathway for microbiome communication with the central nervous system and the vagus nerve has been identified. And in animal models, you can see bacteria or bacterial (coughs) fragments 
traveling yep. along a nerve, except that you can do a cross-section so you can see, is it in the perineurium traveling or to the, the, the brain, or is it in the nerve, or is it in both? It is the other way. And I, yeah, so I've reached out to that uh, researcher, and he never wrote back. I said, like, could you do that experiment again give us a cross-section? Because yeah. <laughs> <Different, laughs> you just people. see them, like, they localize. They're in the nerve somewhere, but I, I can't tell on the outside or inside. I wonder if it's related to nerves that require that their fascicles move independently versus nerves that don't need to move like that. You know, you have some oh. fascicles yeah. that might go to a different part of the body, and they have to move. So you might have hyaluronic. Uh, Gliding. Oh, yeah, H-A, H-A. Depending on where the nerve is. Yeah, depending on where the nerve is going and where it's terminals. Huh. Yeah, oh, so we're right. looking. No, that's that's the they don't right. all go, you know, one. It's right. not one big long table with the separation point. We're, we're looking. I mean, all the tissues I'm looking at so far, although we have started to collect, and I hoped to have some for you, but I don't. Uh, skin <laughs> to periosteum with all the musculoskeletal <laughs> oh, <wow>. fascia. <laughs> so that's different. Everything else I've been looking at is visceral organs. So there's. They a, have to move. The, the, exactly, they do have to move. But, and it's not an either or sort of thing, but one of the things I'm wondering about is the, the microbiome business is that the HA must be the closest point of the inside to the body to the outside of the body turns out to be the lining cells of the gut or the skin to the interstitium. They don't even get to the capillaries yeah. without getting through the interstitial spaces okay. first. Right. So the hyaluronic acid, at first I was thinking, how does that potentiate things? It's like, no, 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 that's got to have a barrier function that only some microbial si signaling can get through that. Um, so we know that we're dependent on microbial signaling to, from the outside to get to the brain. Without that, you don't have normal functioning. Mm -hmm. You disrupt that, it messes up. So I'm wondering, could it just be, is the nerves that have HA, are they the ones that shouldn't have microbial signaling? Or is that, a, I, I, I want to connect that up somehow, mm -hmm. that the nerves that are microbial. to look into. No, exactly. Yeah, but it's not, it, as you said, it's not like either or. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think all of these things, have to, but, the, but the nerves, you'll see the nerves like right next to each other. Some are HA filled oh, yeah? and some, okay. some aren't. Well, yeah. well, but, but. <laughs> and then we have a naming gone to things like glial cells yet, yeah. or, you oh. know, and that relationship to MS and starting to. We're, we're trying to get, part of the problem with studying the HA question is that it doesn't persist in autopsy tissues. Mm -hmm. um, so I, right. I've, now we don't get really, 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 really fresh autopsies, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, surgical specimens I can show HA in, but we're trying to get the central nervous system stuff. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of imaging data to show that the glymphatic system is draining out along the adventitia of the, um, the carotid artery, mm -hmm. and from there into the lymphatics in the neck and the cervical lymph nodes. Um, we've got some dura where I can show you the dura is not dense connective tissue. It's a sponge that's yeah. filled with HA. All of ah. these things, <laughs> right. So we're trying to get, oh. but getting these tissue samples to study this. But yeah. I think we're going to see the same thing. Uh, if you look at all the connective tissue going in and out of the skull, yeah. take a section of any foramina, yeah. 
Yeah. You get the ensheathing connective tissue, which is HA filled, um, the adventitia around the veins, and the arteries and the nerves. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. your in and outside skull thing. The Alzheimer's people are very excited about this. It seems yeah. to be the glymphatic drainage system. Body Talk will return after the break. Now, a brief message from me. If you're still listening, I'm guessing you enjoy this show. And if you value this show, I hope you'll consider supporting it any way that you can. One way to do this is to join my Patreon page, which you can do for less than a cup of coffee a month at patreon.com backslash body talk radio. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is another huge way to support the show. And those ratings make a bigger impact than you might realize. And last, and I'm sure a lot of you are already doing this, please share the show with your friends, family, colleagues, anybody that you think is appropriate. This podcast is pretty much a one-man band. I created it because it fills a need and I keep doing it because I love it. And if you love it, or even just like it a lot, please support the show in whatever way makes sense for you. And now, back to our episode. Welcome back to this special podcast where we're hearing from the panel who was present at the Experimental Biology and Medical Conference in Philadelphia in April of 20. 22. Predominantly, you're going to be hearing from Helen Langevin and Neil Thies with occasional commentary from Laurie Nemitz and Rebecca Pratt. Getting back to where we were, uh, the next person came up and asked about correlations and thoughts about anti-anxiety medications being used to treat fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, I think, is very centrally driven. Sleep problems, a lot of mood, depression... A lot of autonomic, you know, well, I'm not sure autonomic, but certain GI symptoms. There's a central component to fibromyalgia. Not really surprising that a lot of centrally active, right, drugs are are, are, are helpful. But there's a peripheral component to it as well. I think a lot of patients will say, you know, people who do manual therapy will tell you that patients with fibromyalgia, they find classic symptoms of facial pain syndrome in these right. patients. But you can also also look at, you know, in a lot, it's not as focal hmm. as, say, you have, you know, a 45-year-old truck driver who comes in with a, you know, focal place, you know. It's not the same, you know. You might have a patient with fibromyalgia. They might have tender points pretty much everywhere. But I, you will find classic, you know, um, you know the classic taut bands and the, the, the trigger points, and you know, you'll find those in patients with fibromyalgia as well. You couldn't talk right. about myofascial pain without people immediately concluding you were talking about fibromyalgia. Right. I think it's important right. to say it's not the same thing, right. but there's overlap for sure. And on top of it, if you have someone with fibromyalgia who's going to be moving oddly. Um, or not moving oddly, right. then you're going to get a whole super. Impo- I mean, mm-hmm. if I don't, mm-hmm. then you're going to get a disuse mm-hmm. phenomenon Absolutely. that's give rise to all the issues we all have. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and there's been so. some overlap too with like Lyme disease patients. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm also a chronic Lymer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 ye
And our our tendency is to talk about, the moment we talk about brain, we're talking top-down versus bottom-up, and I feel like uh, my other hobby is complexity theory, and there's no such thing, really. You're talking about a web of interactions, and the brain may have more nodes (laughs) um, that it interacts with, but the fact is it's all one giant web, and you perturb one part of the web, the whole web is going to be perturbed. Um, So privileging one end or the other can't be right. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be both. One of the things that we do need to do a better job at is educating medical students about, in particular, pathways of metastasis. Right now, it's like, it goes to the bone. You know, that's the Venus return to the bone goes through here. That's where the the pathology community is most excited by my stuff. It's about tumor spread. I mean, there are classic, if I were, I I took them out of the presentation because you're not a tumor audience. However, so classic tumor that um, uh, lobular carcinoma of the breast. Okay. The diagnostic, um, if I show you the picture, you'll know exactly what it is. Uh, oh, can I? Hold on. You can do that. <laughs> I can. Yeah. I can just call it up on my phone because if you do, so you have a phenomenon in lobular carcinoma of the breast called single cell filing. Hmm. Invasive lobular. I know. Okay, I'm going to show you this image, and you don't even have to. I don't even have to tell you what it is. The dark cells are tumor cells. Oh, yeah. Where are they moving? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you can Absolutely. see that. That's crazy. Look at them go. Wow. They're in the interstitium within the stroma of the breast. And And we have a breast study that's aimed, we're writing the paper now, that these spaces are filled with hyaluronic acid. They go directly to the lymph nodes. That's how these tumors get to the lymph nodes. So classically, we talk about tumor spread through the vascular supply which is presumably how it gets to bone. Right. We talk about lymphatic spread. We talk right. about direct invasion. It di- eats through the tissue. Right. But it doesn't explain things like this. Spread. It doesn't explain um, mesenteric implants of colon cancer that people used to think, oh, there's a tiny lymph node there. There's no lymph node. Oh, it got there through the blood. It doesn't get there. All the, but in the paper we published, we show the tumor cells tracking from the... It, the point of invasion, down through the muscular is appropriate. There's no tissue reaction. There's no tissue destruction. They're just moving they're on down into the mesentery. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a major pathway. <laughs> and there are tumors that, like uh, the stomach I showed you, it's called lenitis plastica, which means plastic bottle. And the stomach turns into a plastic bottle. <laughs> oh. It's signet ring cell carcinoma of the stomach. It gets into the spaces of the submucosa, and instead of invading out through the wall, it just spreads through the entire interstitium of the submucosa, becoming this rigid thing. So there's a whole bunch of... And and the moment you see it, whenever I show it to a pathology audience, people are like, oh, peribiliary cholangiocarcinoma, oh, ductal carcinoma of the pancreas, oh, you know, prostate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're all... Yeah, and they're all traveling through the spaces. And Peter Friedel, who was in Berlin giving a keynote talk, he's been saying for years, malignancy, digesting tissue and degrading it is a late stage of invasion. The earliest stages is it's it's progressing through um, 
he called them virtual spaces because the anatomy didn't exist. Right. And when our paper came out, he was like, oh, they're not virtual spaces, they're actual <laughs> right. spaces. Right. And that's how malignancy gets around in part. But, but it's a big missing piece. Yeah. When we teach gross anatomy for medical students, yeah. we teach structures. You know, we teach the bones and tendons and nerves and, you know, we don't teach spaces. Right. Uh, <laughs> in general. Are you, are you I'm sorry, but we don't. We saw all that histology that you showed, and all one of us, I mean, I grew up, what's all that white stuff? Why is the exactly. collagen bundle here? It's artifact. It's artifact. Do you remember being taught? Yeah. Yeah. I taught that. Artifact is there. But it's the, if you're not prepared to look, <laughs> you're not going to see it. That's my calling, though. I feel like I want to be the paradigm to do it. pusher that gets people to start to put these this into the book. But, you know, trying to get the... Otherwise, I, I you're never going to get a systemic approach yeah. to medicine, a holistic approach to medicine. Well, the right. histology the people...
you can see yeah. relatively. Becky and I tried to get them to do this, and they said, well, get into the scope, and then we'll put the fluorescein in and do a video, see how fast it flows through. Yeah. But you can't focus unless you've got you the fluorescein. Yeah. And it's already filled them. Okay. But if you focused on a red channel mm -hmm. and then put the green through, you would see how fast the fluid is. That's great. Yeah. So there's a whole imaging thing. This is so great. Yeah. I'm sitting here and I'm, and I'm listening to Neil and Ellen, and I'm like, oh my gosh, our, our postdoc students need to hear yes. the, this is what happens when you just can talk, you toss out ideas and no one really mm -hmm. has an answer, but we have something else. And just yeah, that's to right. see, yeah, yeah, to see science part. just drive itself, you know what I mean? Yeah. Talk about a mentoring thing, and you guys but, would just be amazing. But how you get this into the general education stuff, it's a, I'm, oh, I'm, anyone <laughs> here <laughs> understand, here's a fun tidbit, anyone here know Remember, without me telling you? take things apart. No, I know, I know. <laughs> so actin and myosin, right? We understand how actin and myosin work. You have a, an actin <laughs> filament, you have a myosin <laughs> filament, you put in ATP, <laughs> the ATP hydrolyzes, releasing energy, and it moves, right? Anyone disagree with that? Actin That's and myosin what? You, you take an actin filament, put on the myosin, you add the ATP, and when the That's ATP the hydrolyzes, then that gives the energy of movement to the myosin. Mm -hmm. That's the standard, right? Yeah. That's what we yeah. teach in medical school. Yeah, go right? far. Right. Yeah. For 20 years, we've known that's completely wrong. <laughs> There's a whole literature on um, molecular motors, probably, maybe any biomolecule interaction, but you add in the, the myosin, it binds to the actin, and because of Brownian motion, it's bouncing all over the place. You add the ATP, the ATP hydrolyzes, to give the amount of energy necessary to constrain the Brownian randomness into directional mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. That's how uh, messenger RNA works, how mm -hmm. tRNA works, kinesins work. It's driven by Brownian motion. Mm -hmm. No one's taught that in medical school, yeah. but it's been clear for 20 years in the biophysics world that study molecular mm -hmm. motors. This is known how it works. Yeah. I don't know how to get things moving into <laughs> the general teaching. You know, the, the textbooks have to change. And, and a bunch of histology textbooks reached out to me for pictures. Good. So Good. That's what I want to hear. And yes, that's what we all like to hear. And unfortunately, that's all there is to hear. At this point, the conversation went on for about 15 more minutes, but it started to splinter a bit more. So there's multiple voices overlapping almost constantly. Uh, not terribly listenable, but I want to thank you again for joining me on this very special episode of Body Talk. This is David Lasondek. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Body Talk with David Lasondek. I'm David Lasondek, structural integrator, fascia specialist, author, podcaster, all those things. Hey, uh, just a reminder, if you like the show, please support it, leave a rating, leave a review, become a patron at patreon.com backslash body talk radio. If you want to get in touch with me about the show, you can find me on all the social media platforms and you can also email me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. The music that you hear, as always, is by David and the Disasters. See you next time on Body Talk with David Lasondak.